I could take out of my life everything except my experiences at St. Andrew, and I still have a rich, full life. But the last tee shot I hit was more like it, that one in the playoff. Against Biden and Ray. That's right. The best thing to win the Masters, you, you will be here forever, as long as, as you are still alive, so that's the best thing. I'm very happy. Welcome to episode 95 of the Talking Golf History Podcast, and part two of the history of A.W. Tillinghast. In part one, my special guest, historian and author Phil Young, shared the stories of Tilly's youth and the design that ultimately catapulted his career. In part two, we jump into some of the greatest golf courses ever designed and look for answers into questions of whether Tillinghast was a genius. Did he have divine inspiration? And what template holes Tilly utilized throughout his career? We end part two allowing Phil Young to riff on six of Tilly's great designs. It may not be the holiday season by the time you listen to the show, but I thought I would take a moment to say thank you. Thank you for listening to the show. Thank you for following the Society of Golf Historians on social media and emailing me your podcast topic suggestions or your thoughts on your favorite episodes. None of this would be possible without you. So let me repay you by starting part two of the history of of A.W. Tillinghast. You, you mentioned Shawnee on the Delaware. Is, was that the turning point in his golf design career? Was that the, you know, the part that basically shot puts him into national recognition? And if so, why? Um, yes, it was. And the reason it was is because the Worthingtons were passionate about golf. C.C. Uh, Worthington was fabulously wealthy um he spoiled his sons who uh were passionate about golf and he himself uh had had, uh, another small course in in the shawnee area uh back in the late 1890s which uh for the family they had a little few holes on on their own estate as well so when they decided to open up um uh, this this resort he wanted to have a golf course, and his good friend and neighbor, uh, Tilly, uh, I talk golf all the time. Of course, he'll have him do that. But he wanted more than a golf course. He, he wanted what we would really call today a championship course. That's what the and Worthingtons it, wanted, correct? Yes. Not and, Tilly, and so, necessarily. Gotcha. And, and Tilly would obviously love the idea, and so decided to put everything he knew into this course and it, it, it's as far as we know his earliest true championship course and in order to then make it worthwhile they decided we should have a championship so one year after it opened they held the first shawnee open and now pros from everywhere were coming because they're getting a free time there at this hotel and the in, 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 in the uh, Pennsylvania mountains and playing a, a tournament. And uh, it was great. And they were, wow, look at this course. And they brought that knowledge back everywhere. And they were talking to people about, yeah, this course is designed by uh, our friend Tillinghast over there. And that led to him getting a lot more work. It led to him to uh, getting other work in the golf business that few people know about. He was hired by Carter's Seeds to sell seeds. Big move there. I mean, they were a massive name in the seed business in the early part of the century. Yes. He, he wrote in, in, in the, the Golf Journal uh, uh, that they sponsored uh, every month for a couple of years. This tournament really became major in 1913 when the triumvirate came over from the UK and everybody thinks of the U S open where they were defeated, but forget 
that that's what happened at Shawnee. Yeah, it was a whooping, right? Johnny McDermott. That's right. Didn't he win by like eight strokes or something crazy like that? But it was after that because he was bragging on them and he was giving huge (laughs) grief that that led to his mental break. Yeah. No, I mean, it added a lot of pressure on him and he kind of cracked at the 1913 U.S. Open. He would have been, he would have scored what for his third U.S. Open? Was that third in a row? I think it was his third in a row. Could have been, yeah. And, and, And it's, but again, that's, in just two years' time, that's the level that he had brought that tournament to, Tillett, by his contacts. And it just, 1919 was supposed to be its first major with the with the women's U.S. US amateur, but it was canceled, uh, 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 1918, pardon me, because of the uh, a war in 1919 would be held. And so he's then already had on that course his first championship. So you really think so you think the 1913 invasion of and the and the Shawnee Open really was the the key to shining a light on that great design as a championship course that really led to you know call it national recognition for Tillinghast as a great golf course designer is that fair Absolutely because at that time everybody knew the greatest players in the world were in the UK. Why would they bother? Here? Hey, look at that. They're coming over here. And where's the first place they went with Shawnee. Then they had this big thing. Everybody covered them in the U S open and so many articles mentioned, yeah, they were at Shawnee. And so it just all fell together for Tilly that way, as far as marketing. That's amazing. I, I, I before we move off of Shawnee, I, I'm going to share one of my favorite stories of Shawnee and it's, it's years later, almost 10. Uh, or over 10, I should say, is uh, Tommy Armour once took a 23 on a hole at the Shawnee uh, Open. And it's one of my favorite golf history stories because he was so stubborn about it. His caddy, when he got up to the tee box, I, I forget which one it was because I'm going off the top of my head here, but uh, his caddy told him that the, the hole called for a fade. This is Tommy Armour right after when the U.S. Open at Oakmont. So I think he was a little disturbed that his caddy would try to tell him how to play a shot. So he's like, no, 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 it's a draw. So Armour hits one out on the right and it doesn't draw and it goes out of bounds. And, you know, the K's like, I think it's a fade. And he's like, no, it's a draw. And he hits another one out of bounds and another one 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 and finally hits it in the middle of fairway. And he said, I told you that's how you play the hole. And he took a 23. He got tillied, right? He got tillied. I love that. Do we know at this time, was A.W. Tillinghast accepting payment for these early designs? And if so, did it affect his amateur status? I don't know how the amateur status worked back then. But I noticed there's a correlation, it seems, between, and it could have been age too, of his golf design career going up while he stops seemingly playing in, uh, you know, the major amateur or the major amateur and U.S. Opens. Well, the the um, he had got hurt a couple of times physically. Mm. Um, he stopped playing golf almost totally back in, in uh, 1915 because of uh, getting chased by a bull moose and uh, uh, falling and getting hurt. But prior to that, he he was getting paid probably before uh, he got paid for Shawnee. There's no question on that. He probably got paid for others before then. It, at the same year that he had started uh, Shawnee, he was also working on the Bedford Springs Hotel, 18 holes there. Yeah. Uh, that just opened up the year after Shawnee. Uh, he was paid for those. So he probably would have been paid for his work earlier as well. Uh, and that's why in, in the early teens, the question of amateurism became a huge thing because now these guys were getting paid to design courses. And if he hadn't been paid, uh, that probably wouldn't have been such the such of the um, controversy as it became because Tilly was writing all about it. So uh, I, I'm quite sure that he was being paid. Yeah, let me let me ask you a tough question. So, do you see many design variations in Tillinghast's early work compared to the work that? We consider, you know, his world-renowned golf design work. Well, 
let me ask you a question has been answered. When do you think his first world-renowned work was? That's a good question. I mean, I'm probably so thinking, and I'm going to be wrong. So <laughs> um, I, mean, I guess I'm going by something that is famously well-known, held majors. I'm thinking the renovation of Newport in 1921. Because well, after that came Baltus Roll and you know, a whole slew of courses, including Winged Foot. How about Somerset Hills? Oh, for sure. Absolutely. What year was Somerset? It's 1916. Okay. So flows into this question. Did he just have it? You know what I mean? Like, did it evolve? His genius evolve? Or did he just quickly gravitate to this concept of strategic design and building beautiful golf courses at the same time? Tilly work from the very beginning till now, he is always, always in his earliest writings, he talked about putting onto the ground what the ground is giving the architect. He, he didn't just say, okay, we're going to make a par three here, even if we have to move this mountain to do it. No, it's what does the land give him? Mm-hmm. That's why his designs, you can't walk on and say, oh, that's a tilling ass bunker because every single Tilling has bunker was specific to the location, and um, uh, he had every kind of bunker you could do. So it, it was much more than that. It was a natural inborn genius. It's seeing uh, a world paint something that you and I know we couldn't even do with a copy machine. <laughs> on on it's it's. It's brilliant. And yet to the six-year-old, that that's that. Well, that was Tilly. His, what he saw was different. My, my first, and that's part of what gave me my true love of Tilly, going back to my original uh, writings on Bethpage. I have, to this day, I walk off the third green of the black you turn, you open, and there is that glorious fourth hole long par five up the different plateaus. Mm-hmm. But what I've always asked myself is, and of course I can't answer it, and no one can, when he walked down that hill and got to the area below, what made him look back up the hill and then back up another hill to – right? Design that rather than down the valley to the left through which the fabulous fifth hole is played, because that's the whole valley. It's you, you, you get out a couple of hundred yards, you're going to be then down where, where the fifth hole is starting to begin. Why wouldn't he have done that? What was it that he saw? Because I think most people would have done that. And that's what sets apart the great architects. They see the things differently. They see it in a way that we can't envision it. And that's what has always driven my passion to learn as much as I can about him, because the more about him, the more I've learned that I'll never understand him. Yeah, I was just going to ask you, did you ever ascertain why he made that choice to go up versus down? You know, from all the things you know about Tillinghast. He could have gone anywhere from that because he had full control over the design Mm -hmm. of everything. You go go up that hill to that first plateau, he could have kept going because there were many acres that way that were part of the park. It became part of SUNY later on that he could have used for the black horse, but he didn't. He went in different ways than expected. And found things like the incredible eighth hole downhill. <laughs> it, it just, what a great par three that it is, was then and still is. There are things that he saw that we can't, just like the things that great architects see. And we, we, we see what uh, they, they've uh, designed and go there for this first time. And, and we're in awe because how did you do that? And yet they did. They saw that. You might have answered this question already, but does Tillinghast have a style of golf design? 
Yeah, his style is he doesn't. His style is he would. I love it. Good answer. What needed on the land would be given. So, for example, he was not afraid to do a template hole. I was just going to bring that up. I I didn't know how many people out there were aware that he had template holes or how he used them. Yeah, go ahead. Dive in. He used them where the land allowed him to use them. In fact, he he wrote in in one of his uh, articles how he and Charlie, (laughs) C.B. McDonald, because they were good friends, continuously argued over template holes because he said Charlie would force him into places mm-hmm. and he refused to do that. So, but he loved them though. Still, obviously they're, they're well, in his designs. Sure. It's from the beginning at Shawnee, there were the whole template holes there used. Uh, he had a punch bowl there. He, he bragged how he, uh, uh, the mid Surrey mounding there was the first time it was used in the United States. Uh, he did it with features. He did it with entire holes, but he also had his own template holes. Yeah, maybe let's do this. Could you dive into Tilly's templates? Let's go with the traditional templates and his own, because I think people would be fascinated by that. Sure. Probably his um, uh, favorite was a double dog leg par five. He loved to make it turn and twist and then turn and twist back on it. First one was at Pine Valley. He designed that. He wrote about that in, in the 30s that, that uh, 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 George had given him, permi- uh, 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 that he had uh, uh, told his friend George Crump uh, he had a couple of ideas and whole seven and 13 were changed because of that. Yeah. He put the double twist into into that par five, and uh, that was his very first one. And he did that in a lot of places. He loved making a turn. And so, when you think about a, a double dog leg, it can turn left to right, right to left, right to right, left to left. So there's six different types of double dog legs so you take let's look at that page mention the fourth hole you hit it up to the plateau it turns left you hit it up and out and it moves a little to the right but you have to come back to the left that uh, uh to get to the green so it's double dog legging in there there it's some are subtle like that others are are just absolutely no question it's gone left to right and he just really loved doing that he loved what became known as little Tillies, a tiny par three, 110 to 125 yards. You'll find those everywhere on, in, in his work. He just loved them. Um, and in fact, the, the term little Tilly was first used at the San Francisco Golf Club, the 13th hole. Love the 13th. And it's if you look on an, on an old scorecard uh, with the names of the holes on, the name of that hole is Tilly. And so that's the origination of it. Uh, yeah, there there are some that are just really, really nice. The little tillies did outside of yardage. Were there similarities of of bunkering, or was it just a matter of we're going to have a really short short hole here? They were all pretty rounded by bunkers, um, which makes sense, pants. right? It's a shorter shot. Yep. There was a lot of movement in them, some with several uh, uh, plateaus, uh, some with just a constant slow movement everywhere, which leads to a lot of movement that they're all challenging. Another template of his is what had become really a a symbol of the Tillinghast Association, the, the reef hole. It goes back to his upbringing. His dad was uh, 12 years old in, in uh, 1862 when he joined the Merchant Marines. Now, that was normal back then, some of that young. Um, it, it actually meant that he would be, in, if you were in the Merchant Marines in uh, the 1860s, your ship had a 90-plus percent probability that it was being used in the blockade of the southern states. 
Really? Interesting. And so that's something, uh, an, an atmosphere which Tilly was brought up in. And so he decided to create a, a whole based on a nautical theme. And the idea is, just as in sailing in out in the ocean, you want to get to an island and it's storming. And the only way is through the one opening in the reef to get to the to, to the island. You know, you're fighting really tricky water and wind. So your choice as a captain is to gamble. You won't get on the reef and crash and kill everybody or stay out or you gamble and go through it and you get there. And that's the concept of the reef hole. Typically, it begins lower left to upper right. I've never seen one that does it. Um, in fact, his original design drawing is that way. But it's it's long par three. It was usually about 220 to 230 to 40 yards back when, when, when he started doing them. So it was a good hit for most people. Um, you had this reef structure, lower left to upper right, that was mounding on it sometimes with sand, rough, humping it this way and that all the way up. And it usually ended up in a, where a bunker was at the upper right corner of the green. Now, the left side had some mounding the closer you got to the green. Subtle type of bounding to maybe even a little bit heavier that enabled you to do something, which is if you couldn't reach the green, it's just a little bit too far from your, for you, a good player might try to play off the mound to caram it onto the green. A real risk-reward. That's right. So you had between the reef and the green fairway. The open front to the green was open. Right of the uh, reef was fairway. And the purpose of that was so that the lesser player who wouldn't have tried to get through the reef to the island can safely play out there, safely hit on the green, possibly make par, but make bogey. Whereas the excellent player could take a good run at getting to the green, reaching it, but the interior of the green would be difficult for him and may very well still make bogey because he could end up in three puts uh, uh, position very easily, whereas then the good player would have an area to lay up just short of the green and get on and maybe make their par or not or carry them off onto the green. And he actually showed another way to play it, which was to to the reef itself or into the bunkers and get punished. So he took everything into account uh, in the design of that. And and, and there's at least uh, six or seven that I know of. Reef holes. Yep. Yeah. And then you you mentioned the Redan. How often did he use the Redan template? Well, everybody knows of, of, of Somerset Hills. Mm-hmm. What they don't know is the original 11th at San Francisco the if you look on that 1929 card, you'll see the name of that hole is Redan. Mm. The green complex actually was so oh, about 50 to 60 yards left of where it is now. And in the early in the early 30s, the club decided it was just too difficult. There there are some uh, photographs of the green taken in 1925 in the in the in the men's grill there. And when you look at it, it different photographs if you, that you can match them up together um the right side is a big little uh, hill up to the green huge bunker on the right at the back side of the green is uh, a large uh, mound that's uh, where putting surface is that's about four to six feet high and as you watch it it just goes lower and lower and lower it's a really wide green about two-thirds of the way all of a sudden there's no longer any mound and the green is flat. This was a spectacular Redan. Oh, it's so sad. It's gone. Oh, tragic. And yet the, it was Tilly who read, who designed the new green. And so it was his work that replaced it. And so it's still a great hole, just a different uh, type of hole. But yeah, there, there's a, uh, and also out there that we don't even know of from courses that he had. He, he, 
we know of about 240 courses now where he, he, he worked, his work is, is, is uh, unquestionable. What's, that's remarkable in, a, in the period of time that he was designing golf courses, isn't it? Yeah, ex- except that contemporary newspaper accounts put his numbers at three to 400. Wow. And that wouldn't surprise me. I, I, when he was doing Brook Hollow in, in um, 1920, one of the early newspaper articles, Dallas Morning News, mentions that while he was there working on Brook Hollow, he was also working on 50 other projects around the country. What? And I can that's insane. I can put him at 40 of them. Wow. Because he that were started from as early as 1918 were still work that and others that were designed and being worked. Well, let me ask you this. I mean, I've got a series of questions that was going to go before this, but it begs the question, you know, was Tillian Hast a one-man design shop or did he employ golf architects to assist him, you know, as he's doing master design? He was a one-man shop uh, until right about 20. He started using others. He, he had a number of guys who did drawings for him. In fact, some of the most beautiful of his drawings were done by Captain Reese, uh, a British uh, architect who came over here and worked for Tilly and then worked on his own. And so some of the, 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 the they almost look like presentation drawings. Fenway's, that magnificent one, was done by Reese. Um, Southwood Ho by Reese. San Francisco Golf Clubs by Reese. Um, so he did the design. Reese did a lot of presentation drawings. Yeah, the beautification right? of those designs, right? That's right. Yeah. And and so he would do the design and others would do finished design for him. But they're, 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 uh, the 36-hole design of, of uh, Philadelphia Cricket Club over at Wissahickon, which was originally going to be two 18-hole courses um, because at first the club was going to move everything over there and then uh, they got a new lease on St. Martin's and changed it all around. But that drawing also in- includes the the uh, a portion of it uh, added to it by the uh, what you call the tree guy the um, Olmstead. N- no, no, uh, you know the person who does the uh, tree and uh, not arborist. Uh, yeah, you know the, I can't can't. Sometimes words won't come out. That's all right. I get there too. So uh, yeah, so that that's that's a combination of drawing. There's a lot of gorgeous drawings of his out there that have been forgotten about now, but he had a number of guys who worked with him. Some of whom uh, we know, some of whom we don't, uh, some of whom were well known on their own. That's fantastic. So all right, I'm gonna I'm gonna play a little game. I've never done this before. So I've got. Uh, six different courses in front of me. And I'm going to say one of them that'll be a Tillinghast design. And then you can tell a story about it. You can talk about its design and what makes it unique. Uh, these are, I think, golf courses I think most people know. So uh, if you don't mind, does that sound acceptable? Sure. All right. So let's start with, you mentioned it, Somerset Hills. It is there a subtle genius. It is... It's one of those places that you can look, see its rankings, say, oh, it's, got, it's great, it's got to be great, see photographs of it. But every piece of it, every step you take on it makes you want to take another one. Mm-hmm. It is absolutely addictive without standing out as being spectacular. And yet every inch of it is. Oh, I like that a lot. All right, let's go to uh, Newport Country Club. That's a renovation for Tilly. You understand there what a loss we have. Mm. That Tilly didn't get to design courses by the ocean. So it, true. It was so rare. You wonder, it's... You think of oh, you think of Somerset Hills. Mm-hmm. What would Tilly have done there? I don't know. 
would have been special. How could it not be? But he had an opportunity to do a place like that. And again, here's a place. His courses that especially like just starting off, and if you keep going with courses like that, they, they, they'll all have that the same feature where with each step you walk, you just want to take another step. You're not... Yeah. I agree with you. I like on Newport. I just feel like the it's understated greatness. You know, you're you're right. It's not like you know you're not walking on you know Pine Valley and it just hits you in the face. It's you're playing in each shot, each hole. You're like, wow, this is just really cool. What what he did here, right? Well, yeah, and but it also teaches you in what I think each of these are going to do, and I, I this. This may help with with these questions. Tilly's philosophy of design, he once put in a single sentence. He said that the one shot that tells a story in golf is the shot to the green. And if you conceive of golf as a game of animate attack and inanimate defense with regard to that shot, you have my theory of design in a nutshell. So to break that down is that the green complex has been created. It ain't moving. It's not changing. That bunker's there. That green is there. Where you're hitting it from changes constantly. So the green is inanimate. Where you're playing from, because you're doing it from different places, because you uh, drew it finally this time mm-hmm. rather than fading it, right? Or whatever. And, uh, you're coming at different angles. His job was to make a challenge from every angle and reward the one angle that was best. And a place like Newport really makes that jump out because the wind is so much a part of it there that you can play that every day for a year. And unless you're really good, you're going to be different hitting from different spots on every hole most of the time. And so so you're coming to that inanimate defense differently every time. All right. I'm going to go to uh, Baltus roll. 36 holes for Tilly here. That was uh, a challenge for him that he had set for himself by saying, and this goes back to how I began saying his, his um, personality and uh, that that manic uh, belief in himself, where he said, "Wow, I, this is this is a human course. You're asking me to redesign it. Wow, what a thing! No, I'm going to build you two courses, and both of them are going to be better." And so, how did he do that? He did that while, the, and they said, "You have to keep 18 holes open for play." which would mean he would end up using some of the same fairway corridors or portions of it, some of the same greens, but now used differently and therefore changed each one when he got to them. Um, It was a unique challenge, which would be repeated other times where he, including the one that's going to follow this one. (laughs) And, And so what you're finding there is two amazingly different courses you either love the upper and say yeah the lower is overrated or you you say the opposite i love the lower that really deserves the the that that it is the u.s open course and the upper that that's that's really good too but uh, i gotta play the lower it's that's what you walk away from i mean and and to you know to the credit of his design I think we're looking at 11 USGA championships followed Tillinghast at Baltus Roll after that. I mean, up until modern times. So well, let's jump on the next one because it's right after it pretty much is Wingfoot. Another two-course uh, design for Tilly. What separates that from almost all of his other designs was he was given total and complete control. He was – he didn't have a um, – Green committee board saying, uh, change it this way, change it that. They said, you give us 
man-sized courses. And that's what he did. And yet, unlike almost every other multiple course site that he did, he interwove the two courses. That is Brilliant, so right. Yeah, exactly. It, it's wow. You you could he could have done anything, gone any which way he desired, and yet he found the best way were to bring them together that way. That it's again there. That's a great a great example. One of the best examples of how did he see that? And I mean, and it speaks to the trust of the you know this christening club to just give you know, this one architect free roam of the land, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, yep. that, I mean, even now, if you're hiring Gil Hans, most people, I assume, are giving him some direction on where he's going to build it. And there's a committee that's that Gil probably has to argue with. The same goes for Corn Crenshaw, Tom Doak, you name it. You know, committees get involved and they just let him just do it. And look how it turned out. It's amazing, right? Yeah. And my favorite Wingfoot story is, uh, where the original design drawing is. It's, it's in the cornerstone of the clubhouse. Oh. The, it was actually placed till he signed it. They, they put in uh, a, a, a listing of all the members, some uh, documents into a copper box and put it into the corner house, uh, the cornerstone of the clubhouse. Where it and still resides? When that was rediscovered a few years back, uh, a good friend, Neil Reagan, wish he was still here. Uh, he and I were talking about this, and Neil actually got them to at least uh, put a little camera in there and see, and the camera was placed in, and there it is. There's no the copper box. way. Way, and I, oh. I just someone would have the courage to take it out. Oh, can you imagine? I mean, it would be in mint condition. He, well, he told me that uh, they were just afraid with weather and water and this and that. And yet I sent Neil a, a thing I found, a newspaper article about a building in Boston where they found a copper box in a in, in a cornerstone of a building that went back to the 1700s. They opened it up and the newspaper that was in there was in perfect condition. Wow. So I, I, I wish and hoping some guys from Wingfoot would be listening to this say, they really need to take that out. It may be the most valuable Tillinghast drawing existing. And in perfect condition. I mean, what are the odds? I mean, just, oh my gosh, that's staggering. Staggering. All right, I'm going to go in. I'm moving on to one of your favorites. I think it's one of your favorites, San Francisco Golf Club. San Francisco Golf Club, very special place uh, for me. Well, why don't you tell us why it's special to you and then tell us the Tilly story. They, it is unlike any other club I've ever been to anywhere. Those who are members are among the most accomplished people in their fields in the world. And and you walk through the front gate and you walk into the clubhouse and you're just one of the guys or girls. Yeah. That's it. They love golf. They clubhouse, unless it's a special occasion, doesn't have dinners. <laughs> it's it's unless it's a really special yeah, reason. It's a golf club, right? In it's truest sense. It, yes. They are passionate about the game they they get there they can let them say come through the gates themselves and members it's like okay now it can just be me and they go out there and have fun they love tilly beyond any other club i know and because they really appreciate what they have and have for years now just wanted to learn more and more and more and just when i think there's not a question that uh, I haven't answered. A new question comes up because somebody found something else. And they're just absolutely fascinated by it. They, they created a wonderful history room just to honor Tilly, but to also to honor everybody else who, who has been a member of their club. Yeah, that, that history room is so well done. It is, it's gorgeous. I mean, the presentation of it is fantastic, but the information that it has, I think everything from going up the staircase 
seeing the you know the Tillinghast wall to turning into that room is just so spectacular. I mean, the whole clubhouse between you know the pistols and I mean, it's just it is like a it's like a museum. It's it's yeah. you know a living museum, if you will. And I love the part going down that corridor into it where they honor Sandy Tatum. Yes. Um, I had the privilege of interviewing Sandy. I have him on tape for about a dozen hours over the years. And he just, Sandy, you just don't even get half a question out. And he's just starts at hmm. just, you sit enraptured by what he was going to say. Um, and yet there's so many others there that are the same and can add to those stories. They're, um, most important day of the year for the club is the British day and of, of all things. And um, their club was founded by four members who came from Scotland, who were members of, of, of uh, uh, Liverpool, Royal Liverpool. So it goes back all the way to there. Um, and this, on this day, all the members play and Half of the members make up the British team and half of the members make up the American team. And mm -hmm. of course, one year you're one thing, one year another, but they, they just love that day. And it's just, it's all brought together as a club and they'll come from everywhere to, to, to play it. They have a tradition called gangsums where you're going to get out and play and it doesn't matter. You can have 20 people playing the same hole at the same time. Oh, wow. And they just, it's just fun. They're having fun together. Yeah. And they're, other just being, time, they're being kids, right? They're yeah. playing a game. Yep. Other times you won't see, see anybody out there. And, you, and it's, it's just unique. Um, you, the lot men's locker room of the original 1918 lockers with it with with the chicken wire and yeah so cool them. oh it, it is so special and and they've they've given me privileges that i i just to this day i i'm in awe that uh, they've treated me as wonderfully as they have that's fantastic um, all right so now you so, have to get into tillinghast in in san francisco golf club what what story do you have there that you'd like to tell well, starting from many years back that everybody's had it wrong about what Tilly did and when. Oh, let's it, go. I like this. So, the latest, uh, what's it, golf magazine that, that with, with 100 greatest. And, of course, they, 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 they list San Francisco Golf Club and they have it as 1918. Well, Tilly near it in 1918. Tilly got there in December of 1919. They was hired to redesign the greens. He began his work. They loved it so much. They said, change this. We want you to redesign the entire course. Hmm. So we gave them a new design. And in March, in January 20th of, 20, of, of 1920, the club voted to accept it. They started the work. March, it was halted because the Spring Valley Water Company said, okay, guys, you've been on the, the, the ground since you opened your new club in in, in 1918, and uh, we want you to buy it. You don't buy it, go somewhere else. So now they had to raise the money in beginning of, of uh, 1921. They purchased it, and now they were going to get back to the course. And some of the members said, nah, I don't really care for what was designed. Uh, we can design it ourselves. And yeah, better funny. Love it. And that's what they did. Oh, I now, did not know Roger, that. Yes, and so now Roger Lapham, who had gotten Tilly there, he wasn't there in, in, in 1921 because the USGA had uh, uh, already sensing that he had importance, uh, uh, and he would actually be the first person from the West Coast put on the executive committee of the USGA, said, can you uh, do us a favor and come back out to uh, East and uh, come back East and uh, set up for U.S. Open that year, and that's what he did. He was there, and by the time he got back, the course built by the members, designed by the members, was finished. <laughs> and he hated it. Oh, God, that's and so funny. He wrote articles about how bad it was in Pacific Coast Golfer Magazine. 
in, against his own club. That's yes, fantastic. In he was put on the board for the first time and they made him chairman of the green committee. And the first thing the board gave permission for unanimously was to bring Tilly back out. So Tilly designed the San Francisco golf club, the course that we've all come to know in March and April of 1924. Wow. Wow. That's yeah, that's a huge difference, right? What, what uh, golf digest says at 1918. That's right. And, the, yeah. uh, and, and again, it's, it's just because there's numbers that have been out there for and nobody has bothered. And, and there's a number of dates that are wrong, not just with Tilly, but other clubs in that list. And that happens all the time. Yeah. Um, but so it was 1924. And that's, and it wasn't just that he was done then. When he was finished, he left them suggestions that he said that, and recommendations of changes to made to the course that was just designed and built sooner than later, figuring five years. And at the end of 1929, the club decided this at the time. 1930, that work began. Uh, Billy Bell was brought in at Tilly's recommendation to oversee the, the construction of it. And another architect named Cavendish, who was the landscape architect, which is the word I was phrase I was trying to think of before with Philly Cricket Club. Uh, so there were two brought into that. But even with that, when there was a question on the first green about the, the, the where to actually relocate it to, some of the members decided they wanted different from where uh, Tilly had first uh, designed it for. And um, uh, they got in touch with Tilly and he told them to leave it where he had said. <laughs> and you know, so that showed he even being out here on, on the East Coast still, he was in control of that. Then in 1932, he was back there in 1933 for five, six, seven, and eight. And through those years, he re redesigned several holes a couple of times because of, of, of things the members thought should be uh, done. And so it was really for him, his Pinehurst number two, as like Russ had. He worked yeah. on that stop from. Really? Uh, I didn't even think of it that way. So it's like McKinsey and Pasia Tempo, and this is kind of his Pasia Tempo and uh, Pinehurst number two. Didn't even think and, of it that way. For me, that's, that's really, if, because if, I did their club history, I did a lot of things uh, with the club. The most important thing that I, I feel my work with them has done was to get them to realize that in restoring the work of Tilly's that they have to ignore that 1924 drawing mm. because the course yeah. was changed by Tilly through 1938. And there's fabulous aerial photographs of the 1938 course. And so they, they want to be true Tilly. They have to, get it as close to that as possible. And and that's, that's their attitude. They, well, and the, they, and the good news is with, you know, aerial photographs that you'd have in 38, you, you know, what was there, you know, what was yeah. on that ground. Yes. And so they, they've been making little changes here and there to, to bring it that way. And, and it's, they just, it's so important to them, their history down to, to that level. And that's, I have such a passion for the club. As yeah, well you as can feel it when you're on. I, and I just think the use of that topography is fantastic. I mean, I just think, I, I you know, I can't think of a weak hole out there. It's so much fun. Yes, it is. All right, my last one, uh, and no shocker, it's where you started your story, Beth Page. Mm-hmm. Which one? You get a pick. <laughs> you can pick well, all of them. You can pick one of them. What, give us our thoughts. Like, tell us the story of Tilling Hast and, and Beth Page. Beth Page is going back 2002 with that completely um, incorrect, for lack of better words, article by Golf Digest. Well meant, I'm sure. Um, but so wrong. The... There's no question that what Tilly did was far more than anyone ever thought. Um, 
as, as you know, I did a new book on Beth Page and, and, and its history. And Tilly was there for far more days than anything that was uh, mentioned in Golf Digest. The specific dates uh, I've, I've categorized in there. But one thing that no one ever saw before was an article I included from a 1936 interview that he did for the Oakland Tribune during his PGA tour in talking about Beth page and, and, and the project he did there, he said that he was given all the money he needed and 200 men to design and build four courses. Really was the construction manager for it. This wasn't uh, uh, Joseph Burbeck who did it. And it's a shame with the controversy because in that book, I, I refer to Joseph Burbeck as the true genius of Beth Page because mm -hmm. he had to deal with well over 2,000 WPA workers on a daily basis. Yeah, that's, a, that's staggering. Yeah. All the, all the infrastructure, the round swamp road that runs through the middle of it at that time was railroad track <laughs> that had to come out. You had a new clubhouse. You, you had earth moved everywhere. You, you had, uh, uh, buildings put up simply to, uh, uh, use the wood taken down to create all the wood needed for the new clubhouse and anything everywhere he had to face a strike possibility at one time believe it or not during the depression uh and the wpa turned to him to handle it rather rather than they themselves he had to deal with the probably the most egotistical person in america at that time rob robert Moses on a near daily basis, followed by the next five most egotistical who made up the Long Island State Parks Commission. He was under so much pressure nonstop. The last thing he was doing was going home at night and saying, oh, let's see, what do I want to do over here on this hole? Didn't happen. He had too much to do everywhere else. And because of, of the controversy, what he really accomplished, think about it, he oversaw the project start to finish of creating single largest golf course construction project in the history of the game. There's others where, oh, there's a uh, the, the big, huge complex in China with seven, eight, ten courses, right? All of those big places like that, Pinehurst and others, this was done at one time, right. in yeah. it wasn't done over less, decades. Yeah, less than two years. Yes, and and even that is being kind because all I mentioned is the golf. Not, not talking about the, the the polo fields, the 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 uh, uh, baseball field, the tennis courts, the the road work. It was just staggering what that man had to oversee. What and at the same time run an active golf club that was playing. How frustrating is it to hear those, those mentions that Tilly didn't design it even now? I mean, the problem is, you know, when you're writing a book, uh, it's very hard to compete with golf media, right? When golf media writes something, it seems to me, just from my experience, that once it's published, people keep republishing similar factions of that story in perpetuity. Yeah. Do you run into that? All the time. And it's that stuff doesn't bother me anymore because people have an opportunity to learn the truth. It's, it's not hidden at all. And, um, to come up with um, ideas. And, and again, back when I wrote my uh, original work on, on Tilly, part of that was uh, uh, where I even wrote that, uh, well, uh, Tilly designed it and uh, uh, Burbeck may have overseen the work. 
because that's the best information we had at the time. Now we have so much more. And yet, it, even, even at that, it's still saying who designed it. But it's far more than he, than he designed it. He actually oversaw the construction of it. And what's really forgotten for me, and I'll pick one course, it's the blue. Okay. What, what's forgotten? Well, the original blue course, that was considered, uh, a lot of guys today think, prefer the red over the black. Some think it's actually even a better course. What they don't realize is that back in 1935 and 36, when in 35, when the Bethpage was awarded the U.S. Public Links, the idea was for the blue and the black to host the courses, the, the, the tournament, the championship. The black wasn't ready. And the reason wasn't ready was that the polo fields weren't ready. And the original polo field actually was where the first course of the green and black were. Until the new polo fields were built, those holes weren't there. And that's what delayed the black from being able to be used and, until uh, late 1936 for anything. So then they decided, oh, okay, use the red course. But the red course was really number two. And all the pros were raving over the blue course since just saying nice, pleasant things about the red. The blue course, if it was still there today, would big spectacular in people's eyes and that's forgotten that it's every one of the holes were used in the creation of the new existing blue course seven of the holes went there and 11 went into the yellow um they would uh, they think well it's there but these are just mere shadows of what yeah. there were because they were they were greatly changed and why why was it changed because they needed a fifth course. Mm. Uh, in fact, for a while, Beth Page in the 60s was considering to make a sixth course, but uh, due to pressure at that time of taking down trees uh, to to be able to do it on, because they had, uh, it never never happened. But the blue course is among the courses that, uh, two courses that I think we will never get to appreciate it's the blue the original blue and fresh meadow and when you think about it fresh meadow was the first tillinghast design to host two major championships so that's that's what i beth page and the blue i mean i can so wax poetic about about the black course my uh eight putting for a really proud 14 on the 15th hole that I was, I was, I was proud of that 14 with the places I hit it into. And, but that, that eight putt was because the, the uh, uh, green keeper that day must have been drunk the night before because he put <laughs> it about, about a foot from the false front. Oh, that's evil. Oh, you betcha. And I was stubborn because I was going up and back down it and I didn't care who had a waiter for how long I was going to get yeah, in. Yeah, you're getting in that hole. One way or the other, right? But it's also the site of the best putt I ever saw on uh, the black course. And uh, this is to honor Roger Maltby, who is now being replaced, which is a shame. It is a shame. In 2002, I had the privilege of walking with uh, Maltby, who is playing around uh, on the black, first time he was ever going to see it about a month before the, the, the open. And they had three web page regulars play with them, and they were just having a ball. Now, Maltby hit his second onto the, onto the uh, green on, on 15, and uh, he was about 15 feet. He was about, oh, half the way up. The, the hole was placed uh, another 15 to 18 feet past that on the right side. And he's looking at it and he's looking at it and he's looking at it. And then, then he, he starts to smile and he turns left and he wraps a putt at a 90 angle all the way to the other side of the green going up towards the hill. It gets there just almost totally dies before ink 
seen starting back down and now to the now to the left all the way down and just rams itself into the cup. Greatest play I saw. Wish that was in the open because we'd still be hearing the echoes of it. Unreal. And and that, that was in the film showed prior to the open. And I had the I was standing there watching because he aimed it at me as I was standing up at on, uh, up at the hill watching it. And you had to be thinking like, what a line, right? You betcha. I'm like, what are you doing that for? You're crazy. It was wonderful. Thank you so much for listening to part two of the history of A.W. Tillinghast. This podcast will be a three-part history of the famed U.S.-born architect. We ended part two of the history of A.W. Tillinghast on a high note before we dive into part three, an era of his life which saw Tillinghast file for bankruptcy and his much maligned tour of America during the Great Depression. I really think you'll enjoy the third part of this wonderful series. Until next time, yours in golf history, this is Connor T. Lewis. <laughs>